and welcome to the Books on Asia podcast, sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of Fine Books on Asia for over 30 years, located at www.stonebridge.com. And I'm your host, Amy Chavez. And today with me, we have John Grant Ross. He is a New Zealand writer based in Taiwan. He spent three decades in Asia, starting as a failed freelance photojournalist, then becoming an English teacher and author. His works include Foremost and Odyssey, Taiwan Past and Present, Taiwan and 100 Books, and You Don't Know China, 22 Enduring Myths Debunked. So, welcome, John. Hi, Amy. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I have been looking so forward to this podcast. And, of course, it's been in the making for six months now, just trying to get a, you know, a time that we could both do it. <laughs> so, I'm so happy to finally be able to talk to you. Thank you very much. And I'm in the middle of, I haven't quite finished it yet, but I'm in the middle of reading your Foremost and Odyssey. I believe you had just uh, arrived in Taiwan how how much later after you had arrived had you written had you gone on this trip which is through taiwan where you explain the history and uh some of the sites and stuff in the country and at the beginning of the book you say that you kind of went on a whim but could you uh, let us know a little bit more about what made you decide to go to taiwan and how long had you been there when you started writing the book like many people who come to Taiwan, I didn't really have a long-standing plan to come here. It was that old problem of needing money and uh, English teaching being a good option. Uh, I first came here to teach English in 1994. The idea had come to me uh, when I'd been gold prospecting up in the mountains of uh, New Zealand's South Island. Uh, some barely remembered conversations from travelers I'd come across in Thailand. Yes, it seemed like uh, easier money then gold prospecting. I came to Taiwan because I thought it was a good location to make money and also to finish a book I was doing on the ethnic insurgency in Burma. I wanted to wrap that up and also to work on my next big project uh, in the search of the Mongolian man beast, the Mongolian yeti. Ooh. I was to uh, work here in Taiwan and then in the summer head over to Mongolia in the summers I would need multiple trips. Uh, yeah, which I did. I lived in Mongolia for a while, but it's a book that hasn't been completed yet. And as yet, no Mongolian Yeti discovered. <laughs> oh, it sounds so fantastic, though, even if you don't discover it. I mean, imagine, I mean, he could be just created in all the minds of the people, right? Wouldn't that be good enough? Yes, that's right. It was a frame for a travel book, a travelogue. What desperate times for us writers when we such uh, we, when we need such uh, flimsy frameworks. Uh, <laughs> but you know, if, if my modern self travels back in time to uh, to uh, young John, it's like, hey, you really believe that, don't you? Well, I have to believe it to uh, to go trekking through the mountains, don't you? So uh, yes, so I, I came to Taiwan and I uh, did go to Burma and finished uh, that book, written under a different name because it has lots of illegal entries into the country and traveling with insurgents deep behind uh, enemy lines. I went to Mongolia, lived there, uh, came back to Taiwan, and yeah, I just found that Taiwan was a fascinating place. So after uh, four years here, uh, I thought, wow, I'm going to do a epic travelogue, walk the length of the country along the mountainous spine and uh, the foothills. I mean, we have magnificent mountains here. Uh, the highest peak in 
East Asia. You know? Sorry to Mount Fuji, but we just beat that by a little bit. It's not something you immediately think of when you think of Taiwan, you know, uh, forests and mountains. So I planned a two-month trip along the spine of Taiwan. And the very day, the morning that I was going to leave, there was a massive earthquake. September 21st, 1999, over 2,300 people died. And the country was devastated. And it wasn't the most, the safest time to go hiking on a mountain either with all the aftershocks. Right. Well, the trails were wiped out. The roads were wiped out. Yes. Well, I, I can't complain about my small personal loss of having to uh, change the uh, the theme of the book. Uh, but yeah, that's what I did. So I, I moved away from it being a travelogue to a combination of uh, some travel history and uh, some small town life. Uh, I see. Well, it works very well. I'm I'm definitely enjoying it. You've taken buses, you've walked, you've, you know, talked to people and maybe some flashbacks, you know, to some conversations you've had with people. It's a nice mix. So, Amy, I was trying to think of some uh, Taiwan-Japan connections. I'm in a very small town, but we, we lay claim to uh, being the birthplace of the inventor of instant noodles. <laughs> really? Taiwan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what's the guy's name? Let me think. Uh, Momofuku Ando. Um, oh, born Momofuku. Here. Yeah, yeah, Momofuku. Yeah. He's from Taiwan. Yeah, born here. Uh, but when he invented the noodles, uh, he was back in uh, Japan. You know, he's ethnic Japanese. Uh, I'm, I'm in a very small place, so you have to take what you can get. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's a good one. Was he born in Taiwan because uh, he was born at the time that it was occupied? That's right. Uh, so J Japan uh, ran Taiwan from 1895 to the end of the war, 1945. And Taiwan really stands out from the rest of uh, Southeast Asia. Asia um, has quite fond memories of Japanese rule or mixed. You know, there was some economic exploitation and uh, harsh rule, but it was uh, pretty good. A lot of development, and what followed afterwards was probably worse, uh, at least in the beginning. If we can explain to our audience what the development and such, and Taiwan is, you know, a bit of a shining jewel for Japan and its occupation of various different places. It didn't go nearly as well <laughs> in other places, such as Indonesia and Korea and such. But how did Japan change Taiwan in? you know, some of the areas for the better, perhaps, such as education or... Well, that's one. Uh, modern education, better health. They did a lot of irrigation, so they developed agriculture, transportation. Didn't start the railway network, but they, they really uh, built it up and uh, completed it. Just sort of all, all your goodies from modernization. It's uh, the Japanese that brought those in. Not much in the way of self-rule, uh, or the Taiwanese being allowed to to get to the top, but just in terms of general infrastructure and development, um, not bad. Yes, and uh, it's hard to talk about Taiwan without talking about Japan because they did, you know, rule at uh, a key time period for fifty years. So, and one of the things I like about your podcast because you also are a podcaster, and the podcast is called Formosa Files. And it's about the history of Taiwan, but you do have lots of episodes that concern Japan. So I always make sure that I listen to those. But the influence, yes, is uh, you know far-reaching. And I know we went to Taiwan. Oh, I guess it's been seven years ago now. 
uh, sailed around the whole country and spent a month all together in different ports and going into different cities and such. And the reception was great. And there seemed to be uh, no, no friction at all with Japan and Taiwan at that time. And I think also the good thing about Taiwan is they move on. Yes. So that makes a big difference too. It's like sometimes we just have to look forward and say, okay, these things happen. Some were good, some were bad, and let's just move forward and make it better. And Taiwan has a lot of practice uh, at being ruled by foreign、True. powers.、Uh, we've had the Dutch、mm-hmm. uh, back in the 1600s, and the Spanish. They they came here too at that time、uh, up in the north.、Uh, the, the French even attacked us, occupied a port for a while. Uh, the Americans,、uh, they contemplated having a, a port here, force as well. Before them, the Ming loyalists who were escaping the advancing Manchus. Yeah, so lots of、uh, different rulers. And、uh, being an island and being involved in trade, it's, more, it's a more open minded、uh, country than. What you might expect, you know. So Taiwan in one hundred books, which I really, really love that book because in it you mention all these other books that、uh, people could read to find out different things about Taiwan,、mm-hmm. and also it's a good look at modern literature as well as the same perhaps with、uh, Japan. Usually, the first people to infiltrate, the very first foreigners to infiltrate, are missionaries or traders. But missionaries seem to make a big splash, and so there's quite a lot of literature out there written by missionaries from earlier times, and so you go through quite a few of those. And I probably read seven books just that had been recommended in your Taiwan in 100 books, and it was fascinating. I really loved it because I I prefer recommendations for books than. You know, trying to figure out if the book is good <laughs> via a review or. You know, some a podcast or su- such. I I take people that who I admire, and I take their recommendations seriously. And I find that's the best way to find other books. Word of mouth. Well, thank you. Yes, some of the books that made it into Taiwan and One Hundred Books were there because they they were a good match for the particular story I was telling. They're not necessarily the the best. But, right.、Uh, yes. Well, also Taiwan <laughs> in one hundred books is a bit different than writing a book like you know China in one hundred books. There's, I imagine, there's not quite as much literature out there, but it still you know would have been quite an ordeal to narrow it down to one hundred books. And you must have read everything on Taiwan. <laughs> well, you mentioned、uh, easier than China in one hundred books, so that's actually the first in one hundred books title I started working on. Oh really? That's where the that's where the idea comes from, because the great challenge when you、uh, want to read about China is knowing which books you should read or which books have been important. And then somehow I ended up writing、uh, the Taiwan one first.、Uh, you know how these things go. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So we can expect one on China from you then. Yes, that's right.、Um, I should explain to、uh, listeners: one、uh, hundred books. It's not just. A summary, an opinion about one book, and then move on to the next. It's telling the story of a country through books, and that you weave through very well. I thought that you're a very good storyteller. So Taiwan in 100 books, it it's a great story weaved in with books, and so any lover of literature and history and Taiwan is really going to love it. It really, you know, hits many chords with、uh, different readers. I'm sure. Well, thanks.、Uh, yeah, it's fun. 
it's tremendous fun. And, you know, the backstories to the books, manuscripts lying uh, neglected or lost for years and uh, people afraid to publish books. Of course, I kick off the book with this magnificent fraud from 1704, Salmanazar, a Frenchman pretending to be a Formosan native and uh, publishing a book about Taiwan. That is one of the best beginnings of a book I've ever read. That was fantastic. I was just like, wow, <laughs> someone could pull that off too at that time. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's it's just funny. It's a great story by itself. But, you know, behind that, there are some still very relevant uh, takeaways that his story was believed because people wanted to believe it. As I go into the sources that were available, people did know about Formosa. Uh, Taiwan, if they wanted to know about it. But because his book, A Description of uh, Formosa, an island subject to the Emperor of Japan, <laughs> uh, uh, because so much of the book was uh, trashing Catholics, Jesuits, uh, defending the uh, Church of England, then people joined on and backed him. Mm -hmm. And you can see it today, disinformation and um, polarization. Yeah, it's still very relevant. And I don't think it was that unusual for the times either. A lot of these older you know, books on Japan also are quite controversial. And so I think that a lot of people were, you know, they were out, they were traveling, they were seeing exotic places. And, you know, you bring up subjects such as headhunters and such. And it must be difficult not not to go and just write <laughs> in a bit of a sensationalist form because you've already captured the people's imagination at that point, right? Then you just have to run with it. I mean, they do that with movies too, don't they? So yeah, it's mm -hmm. not just limited to books. But there was a time when people were just so eager to read things. It was almost like nonfiction was fiction, right? Well, actually, uh, you, there's, a there's a trend now with um, books being... M memoirs, but uh, fictionalized, just uh, right. from the leg the legal point of view, it's it's safer. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I I prefer just uh, straight memoirs, but yeah, I, I'm afraid that that has crept into because of, like you said, of the the legal ramifications. Now, speaking of fictions, I want to touch on your book. You don't know China, which is about 22 fictions myths that you bust about China. So can you give our listeners a, a couple examples of the things you cover in there? That's kind of a fun book as well. I get into topics like opium not being as bad as it was painted to be, not such a curse for China. That's quite controversial. I look into Chinese medicine and uh, acupuncture and uh, for example, with acupuncture, just say how recent that really is. There are some fun ones about fortune cookies, eating dogs. <laughs> yes, yes. So th those things are easily dismissed. But I think the more interesting uh, things with the Great Wall are that it's not 2,000 years old. Most of what we think of as the Great Wall was built during the Ming. late days of the Ming, so 1600s. And yeah, it's not one wall. It's uh, multiple walls over time, and during long periods, long centuries, the walls were uh, neglected and uh, people didn't really notice them. Probably my favorite chapter in that book um, is on the McCartney mission to China, 1793. He meets the Qianlong Emperor, one of the greatest emperors in China's history, and 
the British are there to try and get trade concessions to open up ports to trade. This meeting between this Lord McCartney and the Emperor hinges on the visitors having to kowtow, having to go down on the ground, hit their head on the ground three times, then you stand up, you go back down, you kneel, knock, knock, knock again, you stand up, you go back down, a total of nine knocks off the head on the ground. But the British were not going to have any of that. That's uh, that's not dignified. But the myth is that if they had done that, things would have been different. And the myth is that this meeting shows an arrogant Britain or, on the other side, a very arrogant China or both. But, you know, when you read my chapter, you realize that both sides were uh, quite uh, well-meaning and tried to find a compromise, and that, in fact, even if they had done the kowtow, nothing would have changed. The compromise was going down on a knee and then just bending forward three times, you know. Um, but that that myth is interesting because that's a particular time when uh, we see a huge shift in opinions about China from Europe, before very positive and then negative. And that's when the Great Wall comes into our mythology as this great 2,000-year-old wall from that trip. They, While they're awaiting uh, for the negotiations over the kowtow, they went and explored the wall. So another one of your hats is as part of Camp for Press Publishing, and you publish books on Asia, including Taiwan, Japan, China, etc. So could you tell us a little bit how, about how you got into to starting that and what you're trying to accomplish with Camp for Press? Well, it goes back to Formosan Odyssey, which I self-published in 2002, couldn't find a, a publisher for it, which is Different from my first book on Burma, I just sent that off to the first publisher. I said, yeah, we'll publish it. Oh, that's good. Oh, this publishing business is easy. Writing business is easy, isn't it? So no. So I had this book for Most Odyssey. And years later, a Taiwan-based Englishman named Michael Cannings came to me. He said, uh, how about I do a digital, an e-book of Formosan Odyssey? It's a pity it's uh, not available. And I I'd sort of been waiting for someone with the technical skills to uh, contact me. And I said, well, let's not just do that. How about this? And how about that? And, um, you know, a few hours later over a bear, we had decided to put out a, uh, a publishing house. Well, to, to found a publishing house uh, a year later uh, with a third person, an editor called Mark Swafford. Uh, we lucky three started Camphor Press, February 2014, focused primarily on Taiwan, but also China and Japan, Korea. Our goal was to publish intelligent, interesting books, something we'd want to read ourselves and would read, but not only read, but read to the end. There is a huge gap in the market. On one side, you have all this sort of self-published, some of it's okay, but there's a lot of low-grade stuff, all the stuff that could be better. And on the other side, you have a, an absolute tidal wave of academic publications. These are basically just rehashed PhDs. And 
there's not much thought given to the reader. So in between, intelligent, readable books with people knowledgeable about the area, we thought, wow, yes. And also, a lot of our books are reprints. It's an absolute tragedy that you have these magnificent books out of print. Wow. You know, even like uh, Tea House of the August Moon. How could that be out of print? I know it's amazing. And this is one of the great things about ebooks is that, you know, we can, if someone's willing to do it, such as Camphor Press, bring a lot of these things back into readership and they deserve it so much. Yeah. So we also do paperbacks, hardbacks. But yeah, uh, I'm a big ebook reader and uh, recommend people getting a Kindle or some other device. Yeah. No distracting things on them. You can read. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to interrupt here for a moment because um, I'm a huge fan of Camphor Press and I love to read. And I went through my shelves, ebook and print, and I have 20 books published by Camphor Press. And however, I've only read 13 of them so far. So I'm still working through them. I even kind of thought, gosh, maybe I should make it my goal for one year to read every title of Camp for Presses. <laughs> It'd be so much fun. But I'm just going to rattle off the ones I have read because I think it can give our listeners a good idea of what types of things you publish. Most recently, I'm just halfway through Up to the Mountains, Down to the Country. I'm not going to tell all the authors because it'll take too mm -hmm. much time. So sorry about that to my precious, dear authors. A Korean Odyssey, An American Bum in China, uh, Inaka Anthology, mm. and that one's about Japan. Migrante, a wonderfully written book about a Philippine immigrant to Taiwan who works on a fishing boat. Rabbit Moon, about China. Same Moon, about Japan. Uh, Starcrossed, that was Madam Butterfly. Mm -hmm. The Okinawa We Lost, Tea House of the August Moon about Japan, and like you said, that is such a classic. I absolutely love that book. A Pale of Oysters, another classic on Taiwan. Foremost an Odyssey, and You Don't Know China, and Taiwan in 100 Books. All three wow. of those by you and Must Reads. Not a bad list. And you didn't in include our uh, Nobel uh, Literature winning books. Yeah, we've, we've got Pearl S. Yes, Buck's Pearl S. Buck. biographies. Now, Pearl S. Buck, the Good Earth, 1931. Now, uh, it's a huge, huge book. But when she uh, got the Nobel Prize in Literature, uh, I think it was 38, uh, they specifically mentioned um, her two biographies as uh, masterpieces. The Exile, that's on her mother, and uh, Fighting Angel, uh, on her father. Uh, incredible writing. Wow. So we picked up a huge number of books from a, another publisher called Eastbridge, and that really boosted Camphor Press into the, the big league. And, you know, we've got about 120 books now. Great. And you do a lot of travelogues because Formosa and Odyssey was a travelogue, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these others on my list, anyway, that I've read are also travelogues, such as the one on South Korea, A Korean Odyssey. Beautiful book. Yep, that was very nicely written. He was a journalist, wasn't he? Michael Gibb, yeah. So what are your feelings on the travelogue as a genre? How has it changed and what do you think we have in store? Well, I'm too angry to think straight. I think it's absolutely outrageous that the travelogue's such a neglected, such a, a dead genre. I mean, it's a magnificent, magnificent framework for a book. You have a journey 
you have a description of these exotic places. And then it's such wonderful scaffolding for information about the culture, the history. I, I love them. Always loved them since I was very young. So, yeah, sad to see it, it, it so neglected. Oh, my Lord, when you're looking at uh, books from the 1950s, you know, something like uh, Seven Years in Tibet by Heinrich Harrer, that's published in 1951. But you you might be looking at a, a printing from uh, 53, and it's got like third printing of the year, and you know, in the front matter. Oh, and, you know, just e- enormous numbers of books for these uh, travelogues, uh, all the way through to the 90s, really. And then the internet came and killed everything. <laughs> and why is that? Well, people became more self-obsessed. They don't need to uh, read other people's uh, more informed uh, takes on things and maybe they're just busy watching cat videos. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, there's some great ones on Japan. You know, Hokkaido Highway Blues um, was really great. It's also had another title, um, Hitchhiking with Buddhas by Will Ferguson. And of course, you know, one of my all-time favorite travel writers was Thoreau, but I don't think he ever came to Japan, did he? That's right. So Thoreau is an example of someone who did uh, did better before the uh, arrival of the internet. Of course, for American readers, Bill Bryson, um, even Ernest Hemingway. I mean, that's really how I think why his stuff was so popular. He was doing things that people could only dream of doing and never actually do them themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Going to Spain and watching bullfights and telling about all that culture were things that people were listening to for the first time. I think Chandler I, it would be my uh, most modern uh, pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you read a lot of modern stuff because you get submissions in. So how does the submission process work at Camphor? Because... Are, are you the person that people send manuscripts to? Yep, it's me. We need three green lights from uh, three people behind and for press. I'm the first green light, yes. So you read a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, uh, they were currently closed to submissions because, yeah, we're behind schedule. Uh, for reasons of professional etiquette, I can't share some of the crazy stuff that lands in our inbox, but... You can imagine, but I, I can tell you a few things. Uh, I've been surprised by how good other uh, publishers are, small publishers. Uh, Peter Goodman, for example, very friendly with us. He's always willing to lend a helping hand. Mm-hmm. Earnshaw Books and uh, Blacksmith Books. Um, yeah, the, the little publishers, they, uh, they are fellow sufferers, fellow toilers in the, the fields. And... Uh, I guess the other surprise is just how bad the big publishers are. Horrendous. They're evil. They don't have any love of books. Shocking, you know. We're trying to sometimes track down the rights for these wonderful out-of-print books, and there's no money in it for us. It's just because the uh, the book deserves a, a, another life. But they just ignore you. Oh, really? Or they say, yeah, well, oh. well, they give you some sort of, oh, yeah, we'll look into it, we'll pass that on. But no, basically, they have no interest in helping you out. Just a simple letter saying, like, we no longer have any rights to the book. No, right. very bad, very disappointing. Mm, that yes. is, yeah, sure. Hmm. Okay. And what are your favorite um, travel books? Uh, when you talk about the classics and such, uh, what, you know, what are your favorite ones? Okay, Seven Years in Tibet, ma- Magnificent. Um, another one people probably haven't heard of is uh, Land of Jade, A Journey 
from India through northern Burma to China. Um, that's from 1996, but a, a Swedish journalist uh, traveled through uh, northern Burma. But it's just a fantastic tale. It's like uh, uh, going back to an earlier age, these areas which had been shut off from the outside world since the 1940s and really little explored or known before that. Just the complete lack of artifice. Actually, we have a book in the footsteps of Genghis Khan. Um, oh, yeah. By John, John DeFrancis. Now, that uh, describes his travels in um, northern China, and uh, northwest China in the 1930s. Yeah, 93. That's the same year Tim Severin put out uh, in the footsteps of Genghis Khan. Um, some people think it's a very tired formula, but uh, for someone who's still working on uh, in search of the Mongolian man beast, I'm I'm drawn to uh, <laughs> searches, and I'm drawn to uh, in the footsteps of yes. right, right. Okay, and now at the end of uh, the podcast, we always like to ask our guests what their favorite three books are on Japan. I mean, it could be Asia too, but I feel like we've discussed a lot of books uh, on Asia in general anyway. So I am very interested in knowing what your three favorite books on Japan are. Okay, so uh, in chronological order, uh, it would be On the Narrow Road to the Deep North, Journey into Lost a Lost Japan. Yeah, Leslie Downer. So that's an example of this uh, sort of in the footsteps, wonderful combination of modern description. I really liked that book too. I was surprised that more people haven't read it. Second book, again, it's Travel and History. And uh, someone who's been on your podcast, uh, John Dougal's In Search of Japan's Hidden Christians. Yes, that book really makes me want to go to Nagasaki. I haven't yet been to Nagasaki, but we're planning a trip. Hopefully it'll come sooner. And the third one, well, I should uh, give a plug to uh, an upcoming Camphor Press book uh, next month, I think, Chirinko, uh by Tom Gibb. Uh, it's a cycling travelogue uh, through Japan. I think perhaps the future of the travelogue is actually not traveling that much, but just a long immersion in a place. The Widow, the Priest, and the Octopus Hunter. That's uh, that's my thing. Oh, my book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's very nice of you. It's a good point, though. I've often thought the same thing, if that might be the next step in travelogues. Because now that everyone can you know, write a blog and Instagram about places they've gone. What about digging down to the nitty gritty about living in a place? And I even noticed that traveling has changed a lot since social media. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed was I used to have a, also do a podcast on Japan with a friend of mine and people would contact us and say, oh, I'm coming to Japan and I want to meet you. So that was the first step. And that was like, gosh, at least 10 years ago, of people having contacts there already. Mm. They felt that they knew someone that they could then meet. And then their, their whole itinerary is based around these people in different places that they've made contact with to, you know, have a cup of coffee with them. And I really saw that as a, a trend in a changing away from just doing the, you know, the regular tourist beat stuff. And of course, since I live on an island, you know, it's another way for people to come out and see a place that they wouldn't get to see otherwise if they didn't know someone who would help them get there and see the things. 
Absolutely. So the earlier travelogue, aspirational people would have liked to travel themselves. Today, yes, the equivalent is, oh, I'd like to stay in this place for a time. I'd like to live here for a year. Oh, especially on an island. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I noticed also that Alex Kerr's latest book called Hidden Japan, that book is an armchair traveler's you know, guide to Japan. And he uncovers places that people haven't been to and stuff. But he says at the beginning of the book, please don't go to these places, right? I want to tell you about them. But if you go, then you'll ruin it, right? Because it'll just mm -hmm. all these tourists will go. So I thought, well, that's an interesting idea on a travelogue, isn't it? So it's interesting to see, yeah, how how much the genre is changing and still perhaps cre creating a, a need for that. Well, yes. Uh one of my favorite fictional detectives is uh, Rex Stout's Nero Wolf, and he he loves to drink beer and just stay in his house, and he solves <laughs> mysteries uh, from there. Hey, I like it. Well, anything you can do with a beer in your hand has got to be good. Well, thanks so much for joining us, John. It's I feel like I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Thank you for your thoughts on things, and um, I hope to have you on the podcast again sometime, yeah? Well, thank you very much. Yes, I'd love to. You've been listening to the Books on Asia podcast, produced and edited by Amy Chavez and Michael Palmer. Logo by Alex Kerr. The Books on Asia podcast is sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publishing quality books on Asia for over 30 years. You can find their books at www.stonebridge.com. And while you're there, check out The Forgotten Japanese, Encounters with Rural Life and Folklore by Miyamoto Tsuneichi, translated by Jeffrey Irish. This is a collection of photos, vignettes, and life stories from pre- and post-war rural Japan looking at country lives and lifestyles that have all but disappeared today. And I'm your podcast host, Amy Chavez, author of Amy's Guide to Best Behavior in Japan and The Widow, the Priest, and the Octopus Hunter, Discovering a Lost Way of Life on a Secluded Japanese Island. See you next time. <laughs>